Welcome to the Arise Church Podcast. At Arise, we're a community of imperfect people, pursuing and experiencing a transformative relationship with Jesus and one another. For more information, you can find us online at ariseonline.org. Thanks for listening. Let's imagine for a second, uh, technology aside, that it's 1500 BC and that we're in the ancient Near East and that we are Hebrews, um, formerly slaves in Egypt, and now we're traipsing through the desert. We're at the foot of Mount Sinai. We live in a world and in a culture uh, that is spiritually charged, filled with gods and goddesses. Now, these gods and goddesses are not kind gods and goddesses. They are mean, they are finicky, they are capricious, they are waiting to watch you misstep so that they can fly off the handle at the slightest infraction. And so in this culture and in this world, um, you would make sacrifices naturally to these gods to appease their wrath. So at the beginning, you may sacrifice a bird Then you may sacrifice a goat, and then ultimately you may sacrifice a bull. And these gods, being as evil and mean as they are, they may at some point ask you to make the ultimate sacrifice and and sacrifice one of your children. Think back to the story of the Trojan War. Some of you may be familiar with this story. Uh, The Greek king, King Agamemnon, is sailing across the Mediterranean to fight in this Trojan War, but his fleet is dead on the water because there is no wind and they are stuck. The Greek goddess Artemis, myth tells us, tells Agamemnon, the king, to make a sacrifice and to sacrifice his daughter. And Artemis is an angry goddess. She is always angry, and she always has the highest demands for those who worship her. So in cowering before this goddess, Agamemnon follows through on that, and he sacrifices his daughter. And history, or myth, or legend, or lore tells us that the moment that his daughter was sacrificed, the winds began to blow, and they sailed on to fight in the war. So to live in the ancient world meant that you feared the gods. So this is the world of the Hebrews. This is the world that they encountered and lived in in 1500 B.C. And then Yahweh, the one true creator God, comes on the scene and he comes to their rescue first in Egypt, rescuing them out of Egypt, out of um, being slaves under the thumb of Pharaoh. Then he rescues them yet again at the Red Sea. And then he rescues them yet again when they're in the desert, providing them with water and food to sustain their journey. They've done nothing to deserve it, and they're left asking this question, who is this God? This God who is nothing like Artemis, this God who is nothing like Amun-Ra, this God who is nothing like Marduk. Who is this God? He tells you, he tells them that his name is Yahweh, and he begins to coax them into a relationship with him to know them and to be known by them. So he tells you his name, his name being Yahweh, what we talked about last week, meaning I am, or what I am now, I will be, what I am, I have always been. He tells you his name, and then he begins to tell you what he is like. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, you can see it here on the screen, and I want you to read it along with me. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God who is merciful and gracious. Now, in the ancient Hebrew world, much like ours, order is important. And order is a clue in this verse for what's most important from God for us to know about him. Merciful and gracious is at the top of the list, meaning this is the thing that first and foremost that this Yahweh God wants you to know about him. Now, this phrase merciful and gracious in the Hebrew is the the phrase rahum vechanun. Can you say that with me? Rahum vehanun. You've got to get really guttural. You know, if you haven't had your coffee yet, you've got that good Hebrew voice and all that stuff is still there. That's right. Rahum vehanun. Now, this is a word pairing in Hebrew that's important because not only do they, they sound alike, but they're self-illuminating, meaning that they explain each other. So what we're going to do first is we're going to kind of pull these words apart and look at them individually, and then we're going to put them back together. So the first word is the Hebrew word rahum. Everybody say rahum which means merciful. It's often translated, maybe some of your translations say compassionate. Now, at the root of this word is the Hebrew word rahem, and that means womb. That is the word that describes the mother's womb. The idea behind this word, rahum, is that it's the feeling that a mother has toward their infant child. Now, in the history books and the ancient Hebrew scriptures, there's a story over these women who are fighting over this child, and they're both claiming that they are this child's mother. In the ancient world, obviously, there were no DNA tests, so King Solomon, in his wisdom, decided that he would uh, devise a little plan to really kind of flesh out who the true mother of this child was. And so in 1 Kings 3.26, it says this, Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, Because her Heart yearned for her son. O oh my Lord, give the, her the living child and by no means put him to death. That word heart there is rahum. It can be translated as merciful, compassionate, also heart, because she had this emotion, this deep, visceral, motherly emotion that, that only a true mother could feel about their child. And she was willing and she would desire that her son live rather than be killed, even if it meant living with the, someone who wasn't his actual mother. Her heart, harahum, was moved by this intense emotion. Isaiah captures this same word and this idea in Isaiah 49, 15. It says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Or maybe my favorite, Psalm 103, look at this in verse 8. It says, the Lord is merciful and gracious. The psalmist here is actually quoting back to Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And as we said last week, this, is, this verse, Exodus 34, 6, and 7, is actually the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. We see the biblical authors quoting back to this verse throughout Scripture, and the psalmist is doing it here. He says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And then the author goes on in the next verse to speak of the rahum of God. It says, As a father shows compassion to his children, So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So the rahum of God is how a parent feels, how a parent feels about 
their child. Now, my wife Valerie is a very compassionate and merciful mother. In the middle of the night, if there's a cry that comes from our son's room, she is up on her feet and she is in that room before I can pretend to wake up and say, I've got it, I've got it, no worries. I'll get, and she's already there. This is how she is because she has that emotion toward her children. Now, me, naturally, I'm not as merciful or as compassionate as my wife is. I hate the mornings. I mean, I just loathe and despise the mornings. And on Saturday morning, I get down to the kitchen table, and my boys are usually in the living room, and I just want to sit down, and I want quiet so I can drink my coffee, get caffeinated, slowly wake up. And then I see my son, Declan. He walks around, and he peeks around the corner at me, and he has this smile. And in the midst of like my morning, incredible, like grumpy, angry spirit, slowly that begins to release as he walks over. He puts his hand on my leg, and then he slowly... He crawls up in my lap, and all that morning angst and pain is gone as I look in the eyes of my child because I have that emotion. I feel that compassion and that mercy toward my child, and that is only a faint echo, only a faint echo of what God, Yahweh, our creator God, feels toward us, his children. Now, tragically, this story may not connect with every single person in this room. Maybe your family of origin was so warped out of shape that you have no idea or you've never experienced the compassion or the mercy that we've described here in the text or in these, these stories. Maybe you had a dad who, like Artemis, was, was angry and was always watching for you to step out of line so they could exercise their wrath on you as a father. Or maybe you had a mother who was the archetypal like perfectionist. And so because of that, you never felt that you were good enough. You never felt that you were smart enough or that you were pretty enough or that you were athletic enough. Maybe that has been your experience. Or maybe you grew up in a home where your parents just weren't there, and so you were left on your own to raise yourself. And so this idea of a compassionate and merciful God who is present and who is active in our life like a parent is one that's so distant for you that it's just hard for you to process in that reality, I would ask you to consider that maybe this, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, this, the, the words of the psalmist here, the story of Jesus is an invitation for you, even though you haven't experienced that level of intimacy with a, with a parental figure in your life, maybe this is an invitation from God to you, for you to experience this kind of love through Yahweh. So for some of you, this may not connect, but for others of you, this may tap into a deep part of your soul, especially if you are a parent. You know that there is no love as fierce as a parent has toward their child. The love of a soldier for a country or for a fan for their sport team cannot even touch the love of a mother toward their child or a father toward their child. It's this kind of emotional, visceral, in the marrow of your bones kind of love that's stronger than life itself. And that is how God feels about you. Pause and let that just sink in for just a minute. So rahum, merciful, compassionate, is a feeling word in the ancient text. It's a feeling word. Now, let's contrast that with gracious. The other word in the text, gracious, which is the Hebrew word hanun. Hanun is an action word. Where merciful is a feeling word, hanun is an action word. To be gracious in this text is to act on that mercy, to act on that compassion, to live it out. To hanun someone in the ancient text would have meant to have helped them in their time 
of need. We see this in 2 Kings chapter 13. It says, Now Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them. He acted out this grace and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God here is gracious. He acts. God is gracious. And he saves Israel from annihilation. He kind of builds up this wall of defense around this embryonic nation to save them because of his grace and because of his compassion and because of his mercy. God hanuns. God acts. We see this in Psalm 86 when the psalmist says this in a prayer, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, quoting back to Exodus 34 yet again, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. So this is a prayer from the psalmist for God's grace, for God to step in and rescue Israel from danger, for this God who acts to do something, to intervene and to exercise that graciousness toward his people. So let's circle the wagons here. Uh, Merciful and compassion is a feeling word where Yahweh feels like a mother or like a father toward their child, and we are the children of God. And gracious here is an action word, as a loving parent who comes to the rescue of their child whenever they're in need. These two words fused together give us a glimpse. These two words brought together give us a glimpse of what Yahweh is like, this God that's compassionate and this God that's gracious. Now, uh, for us, we come before God in many different ways and with many different postures, whether it's in the morning when you're in the text or throughout work during the day, or maybe it's on the afternoon walk or run in the woods when the Spirit kind of stirs you. Whenever you come before God, we all come before God in different manners, but we come before God, a God who feels, who cares deeply. We come before a God who acts and responds and desires to help his children, but we come before God with different attitudes, with different postures of our heart. And as I see it, there's kind of three different ways that most often we come before God. The first way that we come before God is based on what we've done. This is where we kind of give God our spiritual resume. We say, God, I'm a good person. God, I go to church. I serve in the nursery. I even give some of my money every once in a while. Uh, During the week, I volunteer at the homeless shelter. And because of that, God, I want you to do X. I want you to fill in the blank. So we give God our spiritual resume, and it's kind of this math formula with this implicit idea that God owes us something. The problem is, is that God doesn't work that way. I would contend that the only thing that's effective, effective from keeping us from the mercy of God is feeling or thinking that we deserve it, or that we've done something to earn it. This is why so often you'll see that many really pious religious people are actually the ones who are farthest from God because they think that they can earn his favor, his compassion, his grace, and his mercy. So one way that we come before God is by feeling that we've done something and that we need, we've done something to earn his favor. Another way that we come before God is based on what's been done to us. Maybe you're in a rough spot in life Maybe things aren't going as you planned, and so you come before God in the midst of this difficult and painful situation in your life, and this prayer toward God sounds something like this, like, God, I'm going through a really hard time right now. I'm going through hell on earth. How could you let this happen to me? And because of my situation, because of what I am going through in my life, I need you to fill in the blank. I need you 
to do X. So we play the victim card before God. We show God how we deserve and how we need his mercy, and we try to manipulate God to get what we want. Now, there is a time to lament our life situation, but I think that there is a better way forward that we can find in the text and the authors in the Old Testament, specifically, especially in the Psalms, there's a better way to approach God. And it's not based on what we've done. It's not based on what's been done to us. But it's based on who God is. A God that's merciful and a God that is gracious. The posture here of the heart, the prayer, would look something like this. God, you are compassionate. God, you care. God, you are gracious. You're slow to anger. You're bounding in love. And because of that, you help. God, you don't owe me anything. There are others in need around this world. But based on your mercy, based on your compassion, I ask that you would step in and you would do this. So this is how we come before God. Not based on who we are, what we've done, what's been done to us, but based on who God is. Is. Now, prayer isn't a formula. Prayer is a posture of the heart and of the mind. And I think that Yahweh, our creative God, creator God, finds this posture of the heart to be appealing. How do you approach God when you come before him in prayer? Do you approach him as a God who feels deeply for you and a God who wants to act and wants to respond to your situation? Now, shifting the story a little bit here, when we look back at the Old Testament and some of the ancient Hebrew writings, we see that in the ancient Near East, it was an incredibly violent, cruel, and barbaric society. The Bible, especially the Old Testament, is filled with violence. But what we see in the story of Yahweh is is this creator God that's always one or two steps ahead of his people that seems to be coaxing them forward to a world where you love your enemy, not behead your enemy. But we read the Old Testament, and we see all of these stories in the text filled with blood, filled with war. It's the kind of stories that atheists blog about and fundamentalists yell about. It's the kind of stories that we look and that most of us just want to skip over because we don't know how to reconcile this violence, this bloodshed in the Old Testament with this Yahweh God that's supposed to be merciful and gracious. And so we just skip over it. And these are a challenge. There's no way around them that's hard to reconcile with the character of God. But I think even though as great of a challenge as these stories are, there's an even greater challenge in the Old Testament stories and that and even in the New Testament. The greater challenge is not the stories of bloodshed and these barbaric cultures and the violence and death, but are the stories about God's mercy. Because there are even more of those in the text. In the middle of blood in the middle of war, in the middle of this civilization that was just the most violent civilization maybe in the history of the world, we see this Yahweh God who's compassionate, who's gracious, who works to rescue and to save his people. And I think that we see it no more evident than we do in the story of Jonah, the story that many of us are familiar with. Let's read Jonah chapter 1. Verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Yahweh, or the Lord, came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian 
empire uh, during the time of Jonah. This, this city, this, these people had been war, at war with Israel uh, for centuries on and off. The Ninevites were stuff of legend. Now, a few years ago, uh, some archaeologists dug up some of these ancient Ninevite Assyrian libraries, and the stories recorded in there are absolutely crazy. Let's look at this quote from one of the texts. Uh, this is from King Shalamanesar. And he records this after he's conquered a city and, and a country, actually. He says, A pyramid of heads I reared up in front of his city. Their youth and their maidens I burnt up in the flames. So he sacks the city. He builds up a pyramid of heads outside. And then he does what the text here says that he does to everyone else. A really good reason for the Geneva Convention. Let's see what his son did. Let's look at the next text. So his son followed after his father, and he went in, ransacked the city, and he says, talking about the king in this city, he said, I flayed him, his skin I spread upon the wall of the city. So we're sensing a pattern here with these people. They're not nice people. Let's go to the next. This guy's son continued in the family business by doing this. He said, I pierced his chin with my keen hand dagger. Through his jaw I passed a rope, put a dog chain upon him, and made him occupy a kennel. This is the king of the Assyrian Empire, the, Empire, the king of the Ninevites did this. Now, uh, long story short, these people are not nice people. Do we get that, right? This is not the place where Jonah wants to go and plant a church, which is why we read in the next line of the text in verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, Tarshish was a city that was across the ocean next to Spain. It was literally the last city on the map in the ancient uh, Hebrew, the ancient Near East world, so it's the Hebrew or the ancient equivalent to Timbuktu, okay? Jonah here is running in the opposite direction of where God is calling him, where God's calling him. But notice the odd line in the text. Why is he running away from the calling of God? It's not because of how terrifying the Ninevites were. What the text tells us is that he's running away from the presence of God the Lord. He's running away from Yahweh. Why would he be running away from Yahweh? Well, we don't find out until the end of the story, but many of you are familiar with this text. So after a run-in with a storm and a fish with digestive issues, Jonah actually ends up in Nineveh, and God tells him to give this message to the people of Nineveh, and he goes around giving this one-sentence sermon day in and day out to these horrible terrifying Ninevites, and it is this, Jonah 3, verse 4. And he, Jonah, called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is it. Not a three-point message, not, no cute stories about his kids. He's just reciting this verse over and over and over to these people, the one we just heard about. Now, you would think that based on who they were, based on their history and their character, that they would string Jonah up. But there's this amazing twist to the story. It says that they actually repented. Jonah 3, 5 says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. These people decided to turn away from their violence, to turn away from their injustice, and to turn to Yahweh, the one true creator God, in worship and in fasting. 
And then God responds in verse 10. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That word relented is the word nahamed, and it means to change your mind or to be appeased. Now, theologically, however you interpret that, the main point is, regardless of what you believe about that word, is that God responded, that God acted, that God hanuned to these people. He responded to their repentance, to their worship, and to their fasting, and he relented on the disaster that he had promised to bring to those people. That in and of itself is incredibly interesting, but I think there's even a more interesting part to this story, this part that's overlooked so often. We would assume that based on the action of the Ninevites and the fact that they repented and they turned to God, that Jonah would be filled with joy, right? But what we see here is that Jonah is throwing like the adult equivalent of a temper tantrum. Look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 2, after the Ninevites have repented. He says, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country before you called me? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, and he quotes Exodus 34, 6, and 7 back to God. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take from me my, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So this answers the question from earlier, why did Jonah flee from the presence of God? He did so because he didn't want to see God be a God that's merciful and gracious to these evil people, merciful and gracious to his enemies. And he said, this is what I said. This is why I wanted to flee when I was yet in my own country, because I know that you're a God that's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and that they would be given the opportunity to repent, but God, they deserve to be destroyed And so Moses is upset here, and he's seething because this Yahweh God is exactly what the text said. He is merciful and gracious, not only to Jonah, not only to his friends and families, but also to his enemies. Because God nahams, God responds to all sorts of people. Here's the point of this text. We love when God is compassionate and gracious to us, to our friends, to our families, to our political party, to our team, or whatever it may be. But what about when God is gracious and compassionate to our enemies? Those people that hurt us, those people who lie about us, that stomp on us, that betray us, that divorce us, that abandon us. What about when God is gracious and merciful to them? There's a problem with this Yahweh God It's because we can't trust him to withhold blessings from people who don't deserve it. Throughout scripture, God blesses all kinds of unsavory characters, people who aren't even religious or even good. The text tells us that God is merciful and that God is gracious to all. Most of us want mercy for ourselves and we want justice for everyone else. But this is not how God, Yahweh, acts We see this in the story of Jesus, and one of the most famous stories that he ever told is about this father and these two sons. He has one son that's this wild kind of party animal kid. He's got this other son that's a little bit of a stuck-up, self-righteous snob. 
this wild son of his comes to him and asks for his inheritance and an ancient honor, shame culture. This would have been the biggest insult that a father could have ever had because basically it's his son wishing that his father was dead so he could go ahead and get his inheritance. And in a shocking twist in the story, the father agrees and he gives his son his inheritance, his money, tells us that this son, this wild partier, goes to a distant country, and over time, he squanders everything that he has. He loses all of his money. He's living belly up in a pigsty when the text tells us that he comes to his senses, and he decides to go home. And there's like this scene that's like in slow motion from a movie in Luke chapter 15, verse 20. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt what? Compassion and ran and embraced him him and kissed him. This son who has done everything possible to break his father's heart. Everything possible, like in a personal sense, father to son, but everything possible in a cultural sense as well, to break his father's heart and to bring his father to shame. This father is filled with compassion, and he acts, and he runs, and he embraces his son. The important part of this story is that this is Jesus telling us what his view of God the Father is. For Jesus, God the Father is a merciful parent who feels deeply for his children. God the Father is the dad who, although he's been betrayed, although he's been shamed culturally, he runs toward his son and he embraces his disobedient son. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus had this name for God that he said time and time again, and it was the name Father. He was saying this is the primary way that we are to relate to God, not as like puny individuals cowering before this malignant deity in the sky, but as a son or as a daughter who wants to crawl up in daddy's lap knowing that this daddy, this father, is one filled with compassion and with mercy, and that wants to relate to you and entrust in vulnerability and intimacy. This is the picture that Jesus has for his Father. So where does this meet, the, meet, meet our hearts? What are the implications for us here today? Who God is, as revealed in Exodus 34 and then throughout Scripture, has profound implications for who we are. One of the earliest Hebrew ideas found in the ancient rabbinical writings is that Israel, God's people, were to be imitations of God, imitators of God, that Israel was the image of God, meaning they were to copy, they were to emulate, they were to mimic what God is like. They had this idea that the world would know what Yahweh, what the creator God was like, by looking at his people. If that's true, then Exodus 34, 6, and 7 isn't simply just ground zero for our theology about God, but it's also a manifesto for us as Christians today for how we are supposed to live in the world as imitators, as image bearers of our creator, God. Jesus in Luke chapter 6 gives his most radical idea in his entire time on earth, and it was this, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Jesus here uses this word sons. It has this kind of feeling of being heirs 
to the kingdom, saying that the royal family name is at stake in how we act and how we live and how we encounter others in this world. So our job is to carry the name of God forward in a way that would bring him honor and to represent the name of the Father to this world. The question for us today is, who are your enemies? Who are those who abuse you, who trash talk you, who drive a knife in your back, who maybe make your life miserable? What would it look like for you in your life to show them mercy? What would that look like for you to show them mercy? Maybe it would simply start by you forgiving them, maybe not face-to-face, but in your heart, forgiving them, kind of releasing them from your thirst for justice, forgiving them for the wrong that they've done to you. And then maybe it means that you pray for them, not that they're going to get a flat tire, not that they're going to lose their job or have like a rogue nose hair that goes down to their chin in a job interview, not that kind of prayer, but genuinely pray for them. Pray that God would exercise his mercy toward them, that God would be gracious and compassionate to them. Pray for God's blessing on their life, the thing that's probably hardest for us if we considered someone an enemy. So who are your enemies? How do you forgive them? How can you pray for them? How can you ask God to bless this person to bring, who's brought you so much pain in your life? I think this is the message of Jesus. The second thing is, who are the people to whom you have a daily opportunity to show mercy? Hint, they're probably the people that annoy you the most. Difficult people are not hard to find. They usually uh, find you. God has a way of putting these people in your life that rub you the wrong way because it's an opportunity for you to show and exercise mercy toward this person as an image bearer of the Father. Every time you see them, every time they annoy you, this is an opportunity for you to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, toward these people. Finally, this question, do you believe that God is your father? Do you struggle with that idea based on your family of origin, based on your history, based on your upbringing? Do you truly believe that God is your father, like a parent who feels compassion for you? If you do or if you don't, consider Hebrews chapter 4 for a second. The author here says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need, that we may see mercy and find find grace to help in the time of need. Do you hear the echo of Mount Sinai in this text? Saying this is how we are to approach God, that we are people that believe that God feels deeply for us, that God wants to respond to us, but that God is like a father, like a mother who loves us, whose heart, rahums, is moved by compassion with us as his children. He says we are to approach the throne with what? Confidence. Everybody say confidence. Confidence, not as beggars, but as heirs to the kingdom, as children who believe that God wants to welcome us into that kind of intimate relationship. This is a painful text for me to consider this week. Because I realize that this is how God wants us to respond to him with confidence to come, knowing that regardless of what we've done, regardless of what kind of day we've had or our recent history, that we can approach him with confidence that he loves us in spite of all of that. That God is filled with grace and mercy and compassion for us in spite of that. And why it hurts so much 
is there are these days that I'll call Valerie and tell her I'm heading home. And I tell her, you know what? Today wasn't such a good day. It was a rough day. Did you know that being a pastor is not all sunshine and roses? People can be difficult sometimes, just so you know. It's a joke. You can laugh. (laughs) But I'll tell Valerie that, and I know she kind of gives a heads up to my boys. Like, hey, be careful when Daddy gets home. He's had kind of a, a rough day. And I walk in our door, and I walk in our kitchen, I'll set my bag down, and I'll hear the footsteps of my boys running through the living room, and they come to a screeching halt at the door of our kitchen, and they kind of pause, and they look at me like, is Daddy okay? Can I come to him? Does he want to hug me? They don't have confidence because of the day that I've had, choices maybe that I've made, that they can't run to me. And that maybe there are some boundaries to my grace and my mercy and my compassion toward them. I am, as a father in those moments, I'm not being an image bearer of our most high creator, God. But God wants us to approach him regardless of circumstance, regardless of what we have done or said or thought with confidence, that he loves us. And he wants to respond to us in our moment of need. So no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, maybe the pigsty is still on your breath like that son. Please see God as the father figure that Jesus painted in this parable of the father and two sons. Regardless of what you've done, he is the father that is running towards you, smiles spread wide, arms wide open, willing to meet you wherever you are, in your moment of need, because God is a God that's merciful and that he is gracious to all.